Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast. Taking a look inside your genes. You may not realise it, but all the food you eat has been genetically altered over time by plant and animal breeders, capturing advantageous traits to grow more nutritious and easy-to-farm foods as efficiently and healthily as possible. Maize, or corn as it's often known, is a prime example of this change. Teosinte looks a bit like maize. It's a very large plant. It can be 10 to up to 15 feet tall. Uh, so you can think of it like uh, a wheat plant, but, uh, you know, five, six times bigger. However, it doesn't have a one big ear or two big ears. It has dozens and dozens of just tiny little ears, each of those tiny little ears having maybe only 10 kernels. Plus, is attractiveness to mosquitoes in your genes? And our gene of the month is small but significant. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for May 2015 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month, I'm reporting back from the Genetic Society Spring Meeting, Breeding for Bacon, Biofuels and Beer, which was held up at the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh last month. Over two days, we heard fascinating talks from a range of researchers working on ways to make the plants and animals that we eat more efficient, healthy and sustainable in order to deal with the challenge of feeding an ever-growing global population in a changing climate. I caught up with one of the organisers, DJ de Koning, from the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, to find out more about the idea behind the meeting. So there's been a lot of uh, developments in both plant and animal breeding regarding the use of uh, genomic and genetic technologies over the last five, ten years. Uh, that is both the use of uh, really huge molecular marker sets, so tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of DNA markers or even whole genome sequences, but also the technologies in gene editing, so modifying these uh, on a much larger scale than previously thought possible. And people discuss these a lot in meetings within their own species or within crops or within livestock, but it is very rarely that we have a meeting where these experts come together and we can talk across species and have some sort of cross-fertilisation. Appropriate term. Tell me about some of the talks that we've heard so far. Jack Deckers gave a really good introduction to the area from a livestock perspective. This is what we call genomic selection, where we use tens of thousands of markers to do our selection of best, you know, the best animals for the next generation. Yesterday, we finished off today with an amazing talk by our Mendel lecturer, John Dubley. He gave a beautiful introduction also, first of all, of the history of domestication of maize from Teosinte and you know, combine top-notch science with 
uh, improving agricultural production. And that is also one of the big challenges we have now is, you know, if the population keeps to grow, we need to feed them. And all of this is uh, combining to that. The talks we heard yesterday, that was all about the changes that have been brought about through conventional breeding, selecting animals or plants that have interesting characteristics and breeding them. And it was amazing to see how much change just from conventional breeding people have managed to bring about in species that, that we know and love and eat. But then this morning we heard talks that are taking it to the next level. Tell me about that. Yes, this morning there were several talks about genetic modification, how we can uh, change individual genes or bring in genes. And um, this has been happening in plants and livestock for decades already. But uh, with the new technologies like CRISPR and Talon, this can be done in a much more efficient way. And especially for, for livestock, these uh, techniques have been discussed for a long time, like GM chickens and GM pigs. But to do it at a scale that you could actually consider having this as commercial production was always deemed unfeasible because of the inefficiencies. One other highlight is uh, the talk from uh, Sweden, from Liwa Zoo, where she in- introduced how we use traditional selection and genome editing to domesticate an entirely new crop, which I find personally highly exciting. Painting a picture of what the future might be like, bringing together conventional breeding, bringing together gene technology, gene sequencing, genome editing. Can you almost imagine what some of the the foods that we eat, how those species might change, say, in the next 50 years? What would be your vision of the future of how some of these technologies come together? That is a really, uh, really good question. Of course... First of all, we have to develop the technology and then we have to implement it and get it accepted. So the, the, the key question for how the future will look is whether gene editing is treated differently by the regulatory framework and the consumer, consumer perception as gene modification. Because with gene editing, we do a very precise change and we don't bring in genes from a completely different species as was done in the past. So how it could look, I think the systems could become more specialized, but a lot of that specialization will happen at the breeding company level. So I, what I would hope is that at the, the farm level and the retail level, we can, we can offer a more uniform, responsibly grown product that people can enjoy eating. And so we know that we need to produce more food with less input and all of these technologies have their role to play in that. You mentioned some of the the public attitudes to things like genetic modification and gene editing. Do you think that is maybe the biggest challenge to get people to accept eating foods that have had these changes made to them? I think it is a misconception that we simply need to educate the public. I think the public is smarter than we take them for and I think some research has shown that giving people more information only strengthened them in their uh, opinion, regardless of whether they were for or against GM food. But I think we have to uh, show and justify. And the other problem is that because of the cost of the regulations, the GM produce has been driven in the hands of the really big biotech companies that already have a negative perception. No, they have a negative perception themselves with the general public. So if we can do things 
more from uh, well involving the consumers along the way. I think we have to develop, you know, follow the market better and develop products or animals or crops where consumers see there is a justified way. It's not just helping the companies make a profit, which is a valid reason in their own right, because companies need to employ people, but also it does you know, help us in to produce more sustainably. I think then we can get this message across. So overall, if you could sum up the feeling that you've got from people presenting, the conversations that have been going on, What's the general feeling in the world of animal and plant breeding for our, our food, our bacon, our beer, our biofuels, our bread? I think there is the, that at the technological level, we are all very excited and we really see good opportunities to uh, increase food production over the next five years, 15 years. To make that a reality, we have to engage the industry stakeholders and the retail market. But I think... Uh, from this meeting, I think there is an overall sense of optimism how how we can now combine these techniques for a more sustainable food production. That was DJ de Koning from the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. As we head towards the summer, we've got some news that might be useful if you're heading off on vacation to a tropical destination. Holidays can easily be ruined by the misery of mosquito bites, as well as the risk of catching serious diseases such as malaria or dengue fever. But could attractiveness to mozzies be in our genes? James Logan from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has been finding out. So to test how attractive you are, we use uh, an olfactometer, so a Y-shaped tube essentially, which allows us to place volunteers' hands inside the tube and we test the response of the mosquitoes to odours from volunteers' hands. So if mosquitoes are attracted to the hands, they'll fly towards them. If they're not attracted, they'll fly away. So in our study, we studied twins essentially, and we looked at... The, the behaviour of mosquitoes to the odours of identical and non-identical twins. Because identical twins should have pretty much matching genes, whereas non-identical twins are as alike as brother and sister. That's exactly right, yeah. So the idea is that if there is a genetic, some sort of genetic control going on, uh, we'd be able to see that in the behaviour of the mosquitoes. So the hypothesis was that identical twins would be similar in their level of attractiveness and non-identical twins would be different. I'm a bit concerned that you're getting volunteers to shove their hands in a tube full of mosquitoes. <laughs> Are they going to get bitten? <laughs> well, in this, in this particular experiment, the volunteers don't get bitten. They, there is a mesh between the mosquitoes and their hands, so they don't actually get bitten. But I have to say, we do other experiments where people do get bitten, and they're pretty happy to do it. Uh, it sounds crazy, but uh, <laughs> regardless of whether they did or didn't get bitten, what did you find when you wafted these mosquitoes towards different people's hands? In our test, we, where we looked at about 40 sets of twins, what we found in our experiment was that uh, mosquitoes were equally attracted to odours from identical twins. Uh, and when we subjected them to odours from non-identical twins, uh, that correlation wasn't there. So what that told us was that identical twins were, were similar in their level of attractiveness to mosquitoes, which suggests that there is some sort of genetic control of how attractive you are to mosquitoes. We hear a lot in the media about genes controlling things like our height, our IQ, our, our risk of diseases. How does this sort of level of attractiveness to mozzies compare? When, when we do this experiment, we have to do a, a, a calculation for heritability, and that gives us a value between 0 and 1. Now, the values that we got were, were quite high, astonishingly high, actually quite surprising, uh, really at the sort of level of the same sort of values you would get for IQ and height. So, you know, it really was quite surprising. It seems to be a very strong sort of genetic uh, component. 
We also know things like high IQ. They're not necessarily just one gene. Is it that there's a, a gene for attractiveness to mosquitoes and some people have one version or another, or is it going to be more complicated than that? At this stage, we don't know. So we know that there's some sort of something going on genetically. The next stage of the study is then to identify the genes involved. And there could be more than one gene. There, possibly, there probably is more than one gene involved. We know that mosquitoes respond to odours and how attractive you are is determined by the odours that you produce. And these odours can be produced in different ways. They might be produced by the body itself. They might be produced via the, the skin bacteria, which can also be influenced by your genetics. Um, so... There's a lot of unanswered questions here, but it's really exciting now that we can go on to the next stage uh, and, and look at the genes. So once you do find these gene or genes that might be involved, what's the plan? Is it just to be able to test someone and go, bad luck, maybe don't go on <laughs> holiday somewhere where there's mosquitoes? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that is something that we could think about. You know, I mean, you can, you can have your genome screened for all sorts of things um, nowadays, and that could be one of the things that we look at, is your susceptibility to being bitten by mosquitoes. And that has more serious implications for populations in disease endemic countries where malaria or dengue is a problem for example so we could look at the risk of certain populations and take into account how likely they are to be bitten uh, when we do predictive modeling but more than that we could possibly develop a new technology so you might imagine taking a pill when you go on holiday uh, which causes the body to naturally upregulate the production of these natural repellents which is what makes us unattractive and that would minimise the, the need for putting topical repellents on the skin. There's a lot of sort of folklore and old wives' tales about maybe you should eat garlic or, or drink different things to repel mosquitoes. Is there any truth in that now we're getting towards the summer holiday season? <laughs> It'd be good if there was. <laughs> and a lot of people have uh, various anecdotes about uh, Guinness is one of them, or gin, um, garlic, vitamin B. Um, the truth is there is no evidence that it can make you less attractive to mosquitoes. In fact, studies have been done which have shown that vitamin B, for example, has no effect on uh, how attractive you are to mosquitoes. One study in 2010 showed that if you drank beer, it made you more attractive. Um, so take that advice as you will. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether that will stop people uh, drinking beer when they go on holiday, but, um, yeah, the, the difference wasn't very big, so I wouldn't be too worried about it. I think I'll risk it. James Logan there from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And now it's time for a few more of this month's genetics news stories. Regular listeners may remember the Genome Ethics Survey I mentioned in a recent podcast. Led by Anna Middleton, it's designed to discover public attitudes towards genetic testing. Now the first results are in, and 98% of the 7,000 people from 75 different countries who've taken the survey so far say that they want to be informed if researchers looking at their genetic data find gene faults or variations linked to serious preventable or treatable diseases. However, fewer wanted to know if their genomes revealed information about less serious conditions or had currently uncertain consequences for their health. This is important because while scientists have identified many genetic markers for certain diseases, just carrying a particular gene fault or variation linked to a particular condition isn't a guarantee that you'll develop it. There's still much about our genes and genomes that we don't understand, let alone can use to benefit people's health. But studies like the Genome Ethics Survey help to reveal public attitudes towards genetics research, which will help scientists and policymakers ensure that their plans fit with what the public want. Not only are naked mole rats known for their distinctive looks, best described as a wrinkly sausage with teeth, they're also famous for the fact that they're strongly resistant to developing cancer, unlike all other mammals. This unusual trait stems from the exceptionally large amounts of a sticky molecule produced by the rat cells, known as hyaluronin. 
To find out why the naked mole rats have this superpower, researchers at Queen Mary University of London studied the gene responsible for making hyaluronan, known as HAS2, in 13 different species of mammals. They found that the naked mole rat's HAS2 gene seems to be completely unique to them, differing significantly even from other closely related mole rats. The scientists hope that identifying the crucial genetic differences between HAS2 and different species will shed light on the processes underpinning the development of cancer and even point towards ways to prevent tumours from forming in the first place. And if you'd like to find out more about those stories, the references are on our website. That's nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics Podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out why size does matter after all. But first, it's time to hear from John Dobley, the winner of this year's Genetic Society Mendel Medal. As DJ mentioned earlier, he's been finding out how thousands of years of selective breeding have changed Teosinte, a plant with just a handful of tiny rock-like kernels, into the large seed-packed ears of maize or corn that we know today. Maize is a crop plant that's native to the New World. It was grown by Native American peoples uh, from Chile all the way up to Canada in the Amazon jungle. It was grown in the deserts of the southwestern United States, in the high mountains of the Andes, in the high mountains of Mexico. So it was a very broadly adapted grain crop that was the major food source for many Native American societies. Tell me about the history of maize. Where did it, where did it first come from? So what we've learned over the past uh, several decades is that um, maize was domesticated in Mexico, in southwestern Mexico, southwest of Mexico City, and it probably was first domesticated about 10,000 years ago um, by Native American peoples. And after that initial domestication, it spread all the way south into South America and all the way north as far as Canada. So this was farmers going, oh, that looks good, let's grow that, oh, that looks better, let's grow some more of those. I think that's how the process worked. The, uh, these were very observant people. They were excellent naturalists. They uh, knew plants inside and out. The uh, way I like to put it is if you took most modern people in highly industrial societies like the UK or the United States and you let them go in nature, they would starve within a week. Uh, but these people back then could probably collect in just a few weeks enough uh, grain crop to last them all year. Tell me about the ancestor of maize, this plant, Teosinte. What did that look like and, how, and what was the journey that took it to becoming maize? Teosinte looks a bit like maize. It's a very large plant. It can be 10 to up to 15 feet tall. Uh, so you can think of it like uh, a wheat plant, but, uh, you know, five, six times bigger. However, it doesn't have a one big ear or two big ears. It has dozens and dozens of just tiny little ears, each of those tiny little ears having maybe only 10 kernels. And so uh, the architecture of the plant is rather different. It's very branched uh, uh, and not like maize, which typically has just one giant stalk. What genetic changes do we know must have happened to turn those plants with their rock-hard little little seeds into lovely corn? Well, we, we know a bit of the story. Of course, we don't know the whole story. One of the uh, changes we're aware of is controlled by a specific gene uh, that 
takes uh, the many little ears of teosinte and blocks them from forming and instead replaces them with one rather large ear. And so that gene has a big effect on the uh, uh, number of ears on the plant. And the one large ear could have a lot more kernels than the many small ears in teosinte. And the logic behind having that change is, if you think about it, if you were someone needing to harvest grain from a, from a plant, would you want to pick 50 tiny little ears off the plant, each with 10 kernels, or would you rather pick just one ear with 500 kernels? Well, I'm kind of lazy, so I'm going to go for the one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so they selected for that change to make the plant easier to harvest. And what about some of the other genetic changes that have happened? Are they all similar things that humans have said, oh, that looks useful, let's go with that? Yeah, it's exactly uh, like that. Another one is there's uh, another gene that's involved in the uh, manufacture of this little casing around the teosinte kernels, and that gene was changed so that those casings no longer form and the kernels are naked or uncovered on the ear, and that makes the grain much easier to eat because it, it's a different, it'd be as if a, a walnut, instead of having a hard shell around it, was just uh, sitting right there ready to eat. Are these just single genetic changes we're talking about? With some traits, uh, particularly in, in humans, it, you, it's many, many changes that make one variation. Are these just single changes that have wrought this very big change in the plant? So it's, it's a mix. So in uh, turning teosinte into corn, there are some of these genes that have single, very large effects on the way the plant looks. Um, but then there are also uh, many other genes with smaller effects. So it's a combination of the two. And it is, in a way, very similar to uh, many traits that uh, are different between different human populations. Uh, things like eye color have a a few genes that have very large effects and then some other genes with smaller effects as well. And would all these kind of changes have been just kicking about in the teosinte plants uh, for, for a Native American to spot and go, oh, uh, there it is, and just start growing that one? Yes, I think it probably largely works something like that. So uh, teosinte is um, a plant that grows in enormous numbers in Mexico. It's just millions and millions of plants growing uh, over the landscape. And they're each genetically different from the, the next one, just the same as people are each genetically different. Uh, and so um, they could spot one that was having some desirable traits and use that one to grow the next generation. And so this is just <coughs> random variations, random fluctuations in the Teosinte genome <coughs> that we've managed to capture and keep going for, for many, many years. That's right. And uh, as in any genome, there's a process of mutation in which uh, errors are introduced uh, each generation, a few things that don't work quite right. Uh, for the most part, those mutations are destructive and interfere with the ability of the plant to, uh, to survive uh, and do its job. But occasionally one of those mutations is useful. And what people were doing was spotting the useful mutations and uh, encouraging them to make their crop. Do you think people realize when they look at maize on their plate or uh, sweet corn and think, this is a pretty mutant plant? (laughs) (laughs) I would hesitant to guess what people think. I, probably most people don't think that deeply about the food that they eat, unfortunately. Uh, if you want the really good mutant, think about cauliflower. 
Now, if you look at cauliflower, uh, that plant has a hard time surviving on its own and really is highly dependent because it, it doesn't actually make good flowers. It just makes this mass of tissue that wanted to be a flower but was disrupted. Where's your work taking you next? So I'll mention one of the experiments I've been trying to do, and, and that is to see if we can, in a sense, re-domesticate teosinte. So we've started with just taking a large number of teosinte plants, growing them in a field, and just like the ancient agriculturalists, picking out the ones that look the best, and then using those to start the next generation. And we want to do that over several generations and see how far along we can move from teosinte in a maze-like direction by applying artificial selection the same way that ancient peoples may have done. So they did that over maybe eight to 10,000 years. How long do you reckon? <laughs> well, I'm not going to be around that long, and so um, I'll be happy to do it just for about 10 years and uh, see how far I get. And I've already identified a younger colleague who's just starting his career. He and I are going to work together on this, and so he can take on the project uh, when I uh, retire. John Dobley from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It may be a bit too early in the year for music festivals, but it's always the right time for a science festival. This month, I went along to the Imperial College Festival to check out a fantastic range of exhibitions and events, covering everything from quantum physics to infertility. One stand that caught my eye had a big computer screen covered with a spiralling interactive tree of life. I asked its developer, James Rosendell, to walk me through it at the rather noisy launch event. This is a visualisation of life on Earth and how it's related through evolution. So we've got amphibians, mammals at the top, and then reptiles to the right and birds underneath. And you need to think of this as being rather like a map. So you can zoom into an area and see further detail. So zoom in and then you start to see... We've got some monkeys, old world monkeys, apes and humans, tarsiers, lemurs, primates. Ooh, ooh, there we go. Uh, flying lemurs, tree shrews. OK, well, I'll, I'll, I'll show you the path to okay. humans. So if we start from the, the top, these are tetrapods. That means four feet. And that includes the amphibians, mammals, reptiles and birds. There's a lot more life than that on the planet, of course. But... If we zoom in on mammals, first of all, now we see these details appearing. And within those, we can see primates. So we're amongst them. We can see our sisters, rodents, dormice. Uh, we got bats, and uh, I believe there was up there, there was armadillos, uh, my favourite animals. So where, where do we go well, from here? Let's go to armadillos, then, if they're your favourites. <laughs> I actually also love armadillos. So let's just go here. Now, you may or may not have known, but an armadillo is actually quite closely related to anteaters and sloths. Together, they're a, a closely related group. And are all these relationships, they're worked out by looking at the genetics of the animals and how closely they're related? Yes, they are. Although there are some relationships in here that have been guessed based on the naming of the species. So if, if we just look at the armadillos, you can see that actually a lot of people would think that an armadillo is just one species. But in fact, there are 20 species of armadillo in here, including some very weird sounding ones like the screaming hairy armadillo, the large hairy armadillo 
And I saw the, where's the greater fairy armadillo? That is yeah. super cool. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have an image of that one. So how does making trees like this, whether they're beautifully displayed like this or the kind of things that scientists might look at, how does this help us understand the diversity of life that's on this planet? Well, from the perspective of a scientist, you can collect all this amazing data and you might be able to analyse it with a computer, but if you can't get it into your human brain to think about it, then you miss out on using that intuition to notice patterns. So as a scientist, I think it's important to be able to visualise your data in order to... Uh, find out what's going on. But I think there's another greater use for this, which is to show the general public and also as an educational tool the marvellous diversity of life on Earth, how it's related, and also because the colours here corresponds to extinction risk, how much at risk from extinction many of these species are. And is this available online for people to play with and explore? Yes, absolutely. It's available at the website www.onezoom.org. And we're about to launch another version of it, which enables people to build their own family trees to see their more closer relatives. And that's at www.zoompass.org. That will be coming to you very soon. James Rosendell from Imperial College. And finally, it's our Gene of the Month. And this time it's Sarkalamban. A relatively new addition to the list of fruit fly genes, Sarkalamban gets mentioned because of its unusual size. It's much, much smaller than regular genes, and one of thousands of so-called smorphs, or small open reading frames, scattered throughout the genomes of many organisms. For a long time it was unknown exactly what, if anything, these smorphs did, but the tiny proteins that they encode are now being discovered to play all kinds of important roles in cells. Sarcolamban itself makes two little proteins, known as peptides, that are important for keeping flies' tiny hearts beating regularly, and a similar gene has also been found in humans. So, as with so many things in life, size doesn't always matter. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with more reports from the Genetic Society Spring Meeting, including how to breed a better cow. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.